We've got a project on the go here at the Canadian Psychological Association. In, in February, I plan to do a profile on every one of our 32 sections for Psychology Month. And that has meant many, many Zoom calls over the last few months. One of those calls was to Dr. Elizabeth Hartney and Dr. Murray Swingle, representatives of the Quantitative Electrophysiology section. Yes, that is a thing. No, I am not going to explain Quantitative Electrophysiology here because I don't want a nine-hour podcast episode and I still really don't understand it myself. Uh, basically, it has to do with your brain and the way certain parts of it control certain things. I bring this up because this conversation was the genesis of today's episode. I happened to mention in passing the big story that had just hit the news, that Facebook had buried research showing how detrimental Instagram has been for especially young girls. And Dr. Swingle just disappeared off the screen. I thought I'd hit a nerve, she'd stormed off or something. But she was back in a few seconds, holding a book the size of a car tire, telling me that she had written this book about this exact thing. And so, here we are today. I'm Eric Bowman, the communication specialist at the CPA, and this is Mindful. The book is called iMinds. It's available online in bookstores and in an audio version, and a link to the website is in the show notes. Now, let's talk about Instagram and about our brain on screens. Well, hello, my name is Dr. Mari Swingle. Um, and my area of expertise is uh, in the realm of interactive technologies and the practice of EEG therapies. And I wanted to talk to you because uh, social media, uh, obviously in the news a lot over the past several years, but recently uh, some internal studies done by Facebook who owns Instagram have shown that Instagram specifically uh, is causing some real mental health issues for especially young girls. Mm -hmm. And you have written a book that really delves into this sort of thing, how these platforms and how screens and social media change our brains. Can you tell me a little bit about that book? Uh, yeah. Um, well, yes, it's all in there. I mean, I go from... Uh, the very beginning in terms of how uh, something that has potential to be so, so positive, just insipidously slithered in uh, with all of the negative um, and how it is imperative that every single one of us in all of our professional and personal roles has a really close eye and learns how to differentiate the innocuous uh, from the good and the very, very bad. Uh, and I'm talking about, you know, socio-emotional and cognitive um, issues, developmental issues. And, and so that's essentially what the, the book goes all about. But speaking to uh, good old Facebook, um, I had been jumping up and down and screaming to anybody that would listen. Actually, I haven't been. I've been writing articles and doing research. Um, and those of us who were really examining this very, very seriously, we all knew. Okay. Um, but there, I, I, there, I don't think there were officially any blocks uh, in, in terms of getting our work out, but it just wasn't being featured as much in media as all of the things that we're promoting. Um, so what started to happen is we had, you know, the individuals who were so cool and so pro-tech um, and then the Luddites. Um, and and this polarization makes no sense what, whatsoever. As with anything else, the truth is in the middle. Uh, and when we polarize, this is um, we, we, we lose our ability to see, to analyze and affect change before 
there is harm. Um, and my research and my writing and that of quite a few other people were on this, were reporting this. Um, it, it wasn't being uh, taken seriously. Uh, and the, the research by vested interest um, had, had a bigger platform, pun intended. So I'm so happy um, that Facebook has, has, has finally acknowledged this. I think they had to. I mean, I don't think this was a, uh, a gift. Um, you know, I think they had a lot of turncoats, um, which part of me I'm happy about. And the other part I'm like, okay, you made a couple of million or $100 million promoting these things that harm people. And now you have foundations, et cetera, and you're making more millions speaking against it. And I, I always kind of question that. Um, so no, I, I don't have any little chips on my shoulder at all. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we get into that, uh, in case people want to find the book, what is it called? And I believe you are on the third or fourth edition now. What edition is it? Uh, second edition. Yep. Shall I do my my shameless promotion? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> okay. And it I, it is called I Minds. Minds, yeah. How, how and why constant connectivity is rewiring our brains and what to do about it. Uh, it's also an audiobook for for individuals who want something to do on their commute or on their walks. So. <laughs> Terrific. And you recorded the intro to the audiobook, but did not actually read the entire thing yourself. No, I spend my time doing the research and the writing rather than the reading. But, you know, the, I really enjoy doing the intro. So so maybe in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. So let's talk about two different aspects then. So the first part is how this increased connectivity is rewiring our brains. And then let's talk about what we can do about it. So yeah. all of this, uh, and I know that you don't really want to split it into... Instagram does this and TikTok does this and Facebook does this because it's all a part of a whole. But what is all of this constant online screen time doing to our brains? And how is it different for young people versus those of us who have grown up without that kind of connectivity and now uh, are experiencing it at a later time in our lives? Okay, so let me first address what it's doing to all of us and then I'll divide it. Um, and if I forget the second part, Loop me back around, please. I certainly will. <laughs> okay, so uh, I guess the best way to look at this is what it's doing to every single one of us is raising our arousal. And, and for many, many reasons, I can just go uh, down a list. But uh, in, in terms of, I mean, a lot of people have heard, I, I think I was one of the first people who talked about going down a rabbit hole <laughs> uh, of intrigue and, 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 and interest. Um, so, so, you know, when we're talking about topics, uh, that's one thing. Uh, but a lot of the, um, I would say, you know, TikTok and Facebook, the, um, the, 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 the platforms and programs and apps, et cetera, that are, are more forefront now, uh, the issue is compounded because we're, they deal with interpersonal uh, content or individual content. So sure, I mean, I can go down a rabbit hole. I don't know, I'm just going to pull things out on plants and then go to tractors and then go to the 
farming, et cetera, et cetera. And sure, it'll keep me awake and intrigued and whatnot, but that's very different than things um, that have to do with my interpersonal relationships or my self-image. Um, and that's the major issue that we're dealing with now. Um, it's the compounding of extremely high arousal uh, with topics um, that, that uh, affect, literally affect concept of self. Uh, examples of how arousal is uh, brought forth. Well, first of all, uh, temporal sequencing. If I talk with you and, and just play with me, I'll, I'll do a little bit of a game. Just, just ask me a question, any question. What are your feelings on cucumbers? No strong feelings on cucumbers? English versus garden? Do you have to peel them before you eat them? Is part of the game you not answering me and me continuing to ask questions about cucumbers? Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. So, okay. Uh, and, and if, if, yeah, and if, and if you re, uh, share what you were thinking uh, at that point, like, okay, is she hearing me? Is she, like, uh, of course, I was setting you up, and I think you fundamentally knew that after the first pause. Uh, but generally speaking, if that were happening in social communication, uh, the individual would start to feel uneasy. Um, and they wonder why a person wasn't responding. They, they start to question their own importance, et cetera, et cetera. So that's an issue with temporal sequencing that we have on all um, uh, forms of um, email, texting, uh, uh, posting, um, all, all of these things. Um, so, so that's one issue. Uh, the other is uh, seeking of feedback, whether it's the form of likes, followers, etc. So this is what I'm referring to as the as the compounding of um, personalized uh, anxiety. Okay, so I guess then the notion is that when I post something on a Facebook or I tweet something mm -hmm. that I am, uh, whether I'm aware of it or not, seeking feedback on that, that I want somebody to acknowledge they've seen it, that I want to know that I'm not just yelling into a void. And that produces the same sort of response as if I am, in fact, trying to engage in a conversation with you in person, uh, but I'm receiving no feedback in that circumstance. Yes. Um, and then it also becomes a competitive nature. Well, first of all, the feedback, it's not if you get feedback, it's how much feedback you get, how many hearts, how many thumbs up, how many uh, little comments and messages. Okay. But also the number of followers, you know, generally speaking, if, if you make a, a comment at a any type of social, natural social environment, people nod their heads and go, okay. Not every individual in that social environment, let's say you were at a party, you would expect or want to uh, acknowledge your, 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 your comment or your dress, okay? Right. You wouldn't walk around to every single at the party and say, and my dress? Well, what do you think of my dress? Okay. Or, <laughs> or, or you wouldn't, you know, some brilliant comment, you wouldn't say, and you, what do you think? And you, what do you think? And then if it's negative, you wouldn't feel, oh, how dare you not like my dress? Or I feel so bad. It, it, it just, it's not the way um, I would say human interaction um, over many years. I, I don't want to use the word design because we're, we're always uh, evolving as a species and maybe we'll adapt to this too. Um, but in this period of, of history, the, the need for validation is, uh, is, crippling, is crippling us uh, and especially our youth especially our youth. Is that a good segue into how it affects? <laughs> that absolutely is. It, uh, okay. good. 
I, although before we get to that though, I'm wondering if the interactions that we all experience online, right? Mm -hmm. When we're I, even sending an email, uh, often you want to know that that email has been received. I personally uh, hate it when someone responds to me with thanks for the email or something because it just clutters up my inbox and I have so many emails that I'd prefer not to and I'll just send it out and then I feel like I'm done with it. But uh, I mean, but even those uh, interactions on social media platforms and other platforms online, has that changed the way that we interact with one another in person? Uh, <laughs> Uh, yes. And I mean, if, if you have all day, I can go into why, um, but I can give you, you know, selective answers. So um, it, I, I guess the answer is yes, and it continues to evolve. Um, I study this and I, I still can't figure out the rules um, as, you know, a very busy professional um, in terms of how and when uh, I respond to emails, how to prioritize them. Um, you know, what are the expected durations? Um, generally, you know, pre, I'd say interactive uh, technologies, we had very, very clear boundaries between our professional lives and our personal lives. And then all of a sudden, we didn't, you know, we, we felt extremely liberated. We had a phone, a method of communication. I'm just talking about basic cell phones now. Right. Um, we weren't trapped in a physical location waiting for a call uh, or for a meeting. And, and that was so liberating. It was so positive. Uh, but then it really slowly shifted into, okay, um, am I bringing my work home now? Am I bringing my work to dinner? Am I bringing my work to... Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the reverse started to happen, uh, which was when the phones became more sophisticated and there was texting and quicker um, uh, communication, am I bringing my personal life into work? Am I bringing my, whether it's, you know, my daughter or the teacher or the, you know, it's just all of this uh, just started to become completely enmeshed and extremely overwhelming. Um, many professions are uh, grossly affected by this. The teaching profession, for example, it goes both ways. You have teachers who are sending, you know, homework emails at 10 p.m. and you have parents who are texting. Um, sorry, uh, all that should be email. Oh, maybe texting, but uh, email. Um, uh, you know, teachers wanting to know how their child is doing or can they have this accommodation and that. You know, the, the, the boundaries are, are, are just non-existent and I'm looping right back into that sense of hyper arousal um, and, and needing to do things and, and never being able to accomplish anything or finish your quote unquote to-do list. Right. Yeah. Now and just to go, go back to what you were saying in terms of like, I don't even know, like when has the cycle concluded? Like, is it not concluded until you say uh, thank you to the last one. We right. used to have this lovely thing that we used to send, which was, thank you, NNTO. I love that. Nobody does it anymore. I still do. I like that part of my dinosaur aspect because essentially it says, this is concluded. Thank you. And just delete. You don't have to open anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I like that. I think 
I will start trying to bring that back as well. And that's I, a resurrect yes. NNGO. <laughs> those dinosaurs of, of earlier uh, online communications. Yes, yeah. much like the thumbs up uh, emoji in a text, uh, I feel like that ends everything, right? No more. Thumbs yeah. up. But, but now it doesn't. I know, um, I know. And a lot of people feel that that's part of the negative, the negative arousal template in terms of, uh, oh, uh, you know, they can't be bothered to write more. I'm not important. Yeah. Right. So much more now. So, so, so much more. Yes. Yes. Now, this is where I'm thinking about uh, the online interactions. And it's a very specific episode, right? But, uh, or an example, rather. Uh, but the online interactions and the way that we respond to one another online, mm -hmm. transferring into our actual day-to-day -day lives where we interact with other people. Uh, and you mentioned rabbit holes earlier, right? A lot of people end up going down rabbit holes on social media and they start to believe things like, you know, COVID is a hoax, doctors are lying to us, so yeah. on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And one would think at one point that was just something that was solely confined to online. And I have friends on my social media who are evangelical about this. It's a hoax. The doctors are lying to you. But they've now taken it in many places to the real world. And they've actually formed groups to go and protest at hospitals where doctors are trying to save people's lives. And I don't know if that would have happened even 10 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me go back a little bit into the, the, the history here. This started very, very early on. And I remember, I, I don't mind revealing my age at all. I'm in my mid-50s. Um, and when I was doing my um, master's degree in my um, mid-20s, this is exactly when the internet started to come out for the world. And it came out first in the university community. Okay. Right. Um, and uh, we, we were again just elated that you didn't have to drag yourself to the library um, yeah. at, at certain hours. And if somebody else had taken something out, it didn't matter. It was all online. Multiple people could read the same journal at the same time, et cetera. But the other thing that happened was there was, there was absolutely no vetting whatsoever. So university libraries themselves were, were far behind um, in, in or, or perhaps the students were far behind in terms of the, the assumption that if it was online, it was quote unquote published and therefore there was some truth to it. So th there was equal perception of, uh, I would guess intellectual value for everything that was online. Now there's a positive, okay? Because I think there's an intellectual elitism that is very, very wrong. I think there's experiential intelligence, et cetera, that we have far too long ignored. An example I have in the book is, you know, an engineer can learn a lot from a mechanic, a lot, and vice versa. And I think we do need this cross-pollination um, in, in, in any um, job. So, you know, the, the extreme of elitism is not good, but... Um, there should be some vetting and, and, and waiting, uh, as in W-E-I-G-H-T, yes, right. <laughs> you know, uh, waiting to things. Uh, and that's what's been lost. Now, part B to this 
is the good old algorithm. And again, I was writing about algorithms years and years and years ago, and only now um, with good old um, uh, Cambridge Analytica did, did that finally, finally come out and the general public is aware. But um, things that are negative or extremist uh, get much, much more attention. And it is in the interest of any platform to promote extreme or negative content uh, because it, it, it flies so much faster. They get many, many more views and hence many, many more advertising dollars. It's as simple as that. It's all about money. Now, the problem is, as you said, this goes, it, it acts as a manifesto um, and, it, and, it, and people uh, really... Um, take things to to the extreme because again positive and negative you, you can have flash mobs for incredibly good things but also the other way so again the, none of this is inherently bad it's what we do with it and if all of this is mani being manipulated and the bottom line for the manipulation is profit that's where we have a problem I'm going to loop back around, if you don't mind, because I think this is also an extremely important point about the elitism, um, that we've gone from elite to, equal is the wrong word, but in elite indiscriminate, and we're back to elite. I have a major, major, major issue uh, with the universities putting everything, everything online, essentially uh, uh, um, uh deconstructing their physical libraries okay now yeah it's good for the planet etc cetera, etc cetera. but anyone in past who had any element of curiosity could walk in to a university library and read anything and everything and now you can't in fact you have to pay approximately 30 us dollars to read any article and that is wrong it's going to uh increase the divide and you think politics are bad now just wait i completely see that i remember when i was i think i was in grade eight and i went to the uh, carlton university library for my science fair project and i checked out a copy of the journal of theoretical biology so that i could read an article about whether or not geese are more aerodynamic flying in a v and i remember feeling very uh you know uh, elitist isn't the right word, but maybe it is the right word. But, uh, you know, I felt like, oh, I'm getting the top knowledge in the world here. And I had to go in and actually physically check out the book, you know. And But you could do it. Right. It cost me, it did cost me 10 cents per page to photocopy though. I recall. Oh, no, no, the photocopying, that's a different story. Um, but, but I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is you can access it. Right. And photo, photocopying is, is, is choice. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyways, we're digressing. <laughs> yes. And also, uh, even at that time, you know, I wasn't in grade eight that long ago. Ten cents wasn't a giant financial hardship that I had to overcome, whereas thirty dollars for an article certainly would have been. So take someone who is that age today, grade eight, you're I don't know, 12, 13 years old, something somewhere in there. Yeah. And you are now someone who's grown up with all this technology. It has been around your entire life. You've really it would have been virtually impossible to escape it unless you were, you know, in some sort of secluded, uh, distant community. Mm -hmm. So how is it different for younger people today than it is for older people who came to this technology after having uh, a certain portion of their lives lived without it? 
Well, let me continue with the educational component and then we'll go into developmental. So educational, I love it because it's a, again, a perfect segue and a really good point. Um, now we have um, students that are suffering from extreme perfectionism and it's actually excess of information, okay? Um, previous generations um, in, 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 in um, I would say, high school university was a bit different, but you were essentially expected to look at anywhere from three to 10 sources, okay? Build an argument on that and you were done, okay? The teacher might've said, oh, you could have gotten better sources, but generally speaking, if you went to the school library, university library, the fact that that book or journal article, whatever was there said that this was vetted, okay? Your teacher may or may not agree and you had to build an argument, but the quality of what you were looking at was assumed to be of quality that was worthy arguing for or against. Now, when an individual goes online, um, th th there's everything and anything. How do you select 10 articles? It's, it, I mean, how do you do this? And of course, how do you know that those articles are relevant okay i remember way back when even in my teaching days it's like wikipedia is not a resource <laughs> <you know? laughs> right. start yeah so yeah just in terms of the mass confusion um, of, of the of the children and of course that you always can do more and more and more and more and better and better and better and better so when is enough enough i think that's the key one um, and then I'll cross over into the develop. Well, let me also uh, loop back into what this does to um, anxiety. It's just part and parcel of it. And, and that um, is, uh, yeah, the perfect lead into the, the developmental issues. The, the key thing is in my age group and older, our development was complete um, when we were introduced to interactive screens or interactive technology. Now, my doctoral dissertation was on adults, um, and I call it the big three, okay? When I uh, looked at the brains of individuals in those days, we were calling it internet addiction, who had been diagnosed with internet addiction. There were three big things, the big three, anxiety, depression, and the obsessive compulsive spectrum. And we saw this in the, in the brain, uh, and I saw it also in standardized testing. So no matter where you, no matter what the assessment measure, those were there. Now, in terms of what I was doing professionally, I, I've been working as a, uh, a therapist for many, many years. And, and my little niche, I'd say uh, 2000, late, late 1990s, 2000-ish, um, was working with uh, children with either uh, learning disabilities, disorders, or behavioral issues. And not to do a big chest pounding, but I, but I had a really good hit rate, you know, in <laughs> terms of um, individuals, uh, you know, the parents and the children that were really happy with the work they were doing. And they go off skipping into the sunset. <laughs> okay. right. um, and then something started to happen, wherein individuals would return, you know, three months later, and, uh, yeah, my child was doing really well, but their symptoms are back. And then uh, it started to occur that in treatment itself, we weren't seeing the changes that we used to see. Uh, and, and it was an absolute enigma 
absolute enigma. And then the epiphany bell went off. These were all young male children and the issue was gaming. So what uh, I was finding was that excessive, at that time, gaming, and now it's all of it, it's all interactive screen use, uh, essentially had a, a compounding or con, um, um, causational contribution to the ailment for which the, the child and the family were seeking um, psychological services. Um, so essentially, uh, attention on dif difficulties and behavioral difficulties. Um, and then, of course, when I started to work um, longer in this, also the, the adults. And I can go on and on in terms of, you know, what it is and, and how it is. But, you know, for children, you know, attentional cycles are, are greatly affected. Everything that we do online is like highest level of arousal. Doom, 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 doom. And we, we have our own pace of arousal higher and higher and higher. The rest of life, and in particularly school, I apologize to educators, is rather mundane. So, you know, we're essentially restricting the inhibition mechanism with our engagement uh, with interactive technologies or the development of the inhibition mechanism. Um, and um, my, my phrase that I tease with clients is, children no longer know how to sustain the mundane. Um, and as much as we want life to be exciting, a lot of it is mundane. You know, our self-care, you know, brushing our teeth and brushing our hair and setting the table, the chores, our homework, okay? Life kind of goes like this, but little excitement, a little down, doo, 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 a little excitement, a little down. And everything we do online, it has us in hyper, hyper, hyper arousal, and we can't sustain the attention needed for regular life. We're also bored with re uh, regular life, and we're anxious in regular life because we're lacking the stimulation. And here we go right into the language of addiction and arousal template. I mean, I, I can go on and on for, for hours, whether we want to talk about uh, education, sexuality, all of it. It's all there. Well, I, I want to talk about addiction right now, right? I mean, you were talking about when you did your PhD dissertation and you were looking at adults who at that time, they would have been considered uh, addicted to the internet. Do we all now have what they had then? Oh, brilliant question. Brilliant question. And all brilliant questions have the answer. It depends. <laughs> yeah. No, the, the major issue, and, you know, I talk about epigenetics and biology a lot in the book as well, um, is our technologies are evolving faster than our biology can absorb it. Um, and, the, and the big factor in it depends is, um, I'm sorry, we all want to be PC and say we're all created equal. We're not. Okay, there are key epigenetic factors. Um, an example I always, always use because everybody gets it uh, is alcohol. So if we take our, our interactive use um, and use it the same uh, as we do alcohol, you'll look at, you know, individuals, you know, everybody knows that one individual who can down half a bottle of scotch, I don't recommend they write you know, legal documents or drive a car, but otherwise they don't slur their speech. They're, they're essentially fine. And then there's that one person, half a glass of rosé is loopy. Right. Okay. It's the same substance. Okay. That's the, uh, the epigenetic um, uh, factor in the individual, but, you know, moving on with the, the, the same thing, people who ingest a little bit of alcohol at a party or a lot of alcohol at a party, you have that 
gregarious life of the party person. You have the teary drunk. Oh, everything goes wrong when they're drunk and they sit in the corner and crying. And then you have that fierce, angry, dangerous drunk. It's the same substance, but the emotional reaction is different. Okay. Duffs from the Simpsons. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and I can go, I, I really use alcohol a, a lot as an example because people really, really understand it. Um, and my issue with a lot of the literature that's coming out, actually, that, that, let me go uh, back in terms of also research on alcohol um, and how it's, um, and, and research on um, uh, excessive or just regular um, interactive screen use. A lot of it is on gaming. Uh, wherein, um, you know, they say gaming is good for you and increases spatial planning, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the research is based on, uh, if we use the parallel of alcohol, it's based on sommeliers, people who consume alcohol professionally. And uh, same thing, a lot of the research is on professional gamers. And then that same research um, is used for all of us including the sommeliers, individuals who enjoy a glass of wine socially with friends and family, and individuals with extreme issues with alcohol. So again, it's cherry picking and selective research. And then in all the headlines, we see gaming is good for spatial planning. No, again, I have quite a few chapters on a lot of these uh, red herrings and, and myths, or I, I would say a gross blanketing of research to, to everyone. We are not creative equal. Are there children and adults, et cetera, who can game for eight hours a day or be online after work for extensive periods of time and not experience any harm? Absolutely. But they are not the majority of us. So we are doing a great disservice by propagating the research on that select not population, but sample within a population. Anyways, I can go on and on about my my, my little rage there. Um, and just to continue with, with, with that analogy, uh, again, research that's been done both on alcohol and on the effects of technology on the brain. Um, if you look at a sommelier and what regions of the brain light up with alcohol consumption, it's the cognitive centers that light up. If you look at social drinkers, uh, with, with no issues with alcoholism, excessive abuse, et cetera, or use. It's the emotional centers uh, that tend to light up. And for those who do have addiction issues, it's the reward circuitry and the emotional centers that light up. So it's your relationship with alcohol. It's your relationship with your screen use that precludes or, sorry, um, uh, decides or shows uh, what areas of the brain and circuitry will be involved. We are different. Hence my saying, brilliant question, it depends. But if well, I can just rattle on for one more thing. Okay. <laughs> or did I forget what I was going to say? Oh, yeah. But the best way to look at um, where we are currently in history um, is how we deal with our food and also how we deal with uh, deal with eating disorders. Okay. Um, you know, there's junk food, there's extremely nutritious food that doesn't taste very good. And then there's all kinds of yummy stuff in the middle. So pick and choose, you know, enjoy some candy and garbage online. It's fun. Go for it. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm not saying don't have fun. Have your chocolate cake and your gummy bears and go for it. Okay. Also have your really serious stuff. And then, you know, this, uh, there are the things in the middle, uh, but issues arise um, when we do too much or not enough. So the, the biggest, biggest um, 
the best example is that of eating disorders. So you cannot tell an obese person not to eat. You have to learn how to mediate the consumption of food. So the same thing is now true uh, with our interactive technologies. They're here. They're a necessary component of modern life, school, education, social, et cetera. And we all have to learn how to mediate the behaviors. But when you have somebody who's suffering from anorexia, uh, bulimia, nervosa, et cetera, or uh, obesity, the rules are a little bit different. That makes sense. And that does lead us into what can we do from here? Before we get to that, though, I do have one question. I am a casual social drinker. I like a few drinks on the weekend with my friends. But what happens to me if I am told constantly mm -hmm. that if I just drink a little bit more, that if I do it every day or if I do more of it, that I could become a sommelier, that I could do this as a career? Yeah. What are the chances that that will affect me? Will I no longer become that social drinker who just enjoys a few drinks and become somebody who has a problem with alcohol? Or might I become a sommelier? It strikes me that the latter is less likely. Yeah, the, I, I put the analogy into how many individuals playing guitar in their basement uh, become rock stars. So, you know, do you quit school, not work, et cetera, and just go the, un, the chance that you're literally the one in the million that becomes a rock star? No, we have our plan A and our plan B, and we don't quit school, and we don't, right? You know, uh, even extremely dedicated musicians, you know, um, they, they make some critical decisions after a certain age in terms of what they do with their careers. Um, the other is, you know, um, red herrings and false analogies. If you have an individual who, um, who says, and I'm going to use alcohol because it's just so obvious, okay, in terms of gaming that, yeah, I have to drink beer, mom and dad, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be opening a microbrewery. Okay. Well, that doesn't mean you need to drink 20 pints of beer a day. You should be studying chemistry and engineering and all the true skills that you need um, that to become a brewmaster. Consuming alcohol, ability to taste subtleties, et cetera, is one thing. Inebriating yourself is quite different. So the majority of the, um, the arguments that were given either by the budding addict or the industry supporting the sale of their products or the sale of the, the, or the viewing of the advertising in the free products, majority of it is, is false. There's, by the way, if anybody wants to go to my website, it's completely outdated. I apologize. Got to get to it. But on there, there are a few articles and one of them includes, you know, the 10 things parents learned in, I think it's uh, learned in research 101 uh, that are being misused by the gaming industry. And I have 10 uh, examples of the things uh, that parents uh, and children are being told that are positive uh, about why children should game and then just the absurdities of them. So just go to my website in the articles and just take that one. I will put it in the notes to the podcast so people can oh, click okay. on it there. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so moving on then to what can we do from here? And let's take Instagram. It's the one that's in the news right now. Mm -hmm. One in five teenage girls say that when they look at Instagram, it causes them to feel worse about themselves, have a more negative body image. Mm -hmm. More and more people are saying that uh, suicidal ideologies actually began with looking at Instagram. That's the big one in the news right now. 
Mm-hmm. What can we do? I mean, what can I do as the Canadian Psychological Association who does have an Instagram account, who does mm-hmm. post on Instagram, obviously not the content that probably is the issue, right? The uh, body image content and that sort of thing. But what can Instagram users, parents, uh, school counselors, educators do uh, to counteract this, to steer people in the right direction? Or what can Instagram do? Okay, so the first thing for a lot of professionals is to ask yourself, is this necessary? I don't want to pull a holier than now. Uh, I'm not on Instagram or anything. Now, my rationale um, <clears throat> was was not that exceptional. It was, it was a time thief. And I just didn't have time for that. I didn't want to be responding to things and following things, et cetera, when I could be doing research and, and working with actual individuals that needed my help. So that was my uh, rationale. Um, but a lot of us do get trapped in feeling that we need platforms and services um, to be present and promote our, our, our careers. Um, and I, I'd like us to do a general reevaluation of that. Uh, again, there's so much out there and it's really hard to differentiate good from bad from neutral. And quite frankly, uh, ask ourselves, what you put out in so many characters, et cetera, are you really doing any service to anybody? Right. You know, how much valuable information are you really getting out in that? Okay, I'm not going to give you the answer. I'm going to ask you to ask yourself. I have my answer. The second is a key, key thing. There was no precedent. There was no guide or template into how we should enter into this new world. Um, And for better or for worse, this was completely youth guided. Uh, Now, uh, you know, following following your skipping younger sister into the woods can be great fun. You know, skip behind her with your eyes open, etc., because she might be leading you down a path that isn't explored and that can have a lot of danger. And we've been following youth without any, without any rules, without any guidance. So we need that maturity in there to be examining, uh, researching what this is doing currently, not after it has derailed. As I said, there's no precedent. We are literally in a live experiment and we don't know the outcome. But what we're seeing is kind of scary. Well, and it it does look like Facebook Mm -hmm. internally did a lot of this research. And And they covered it all up for profit, just like the cigarette industry, just like the cigarette industry. Sorry. I don't say sue me, but sorry, my research <laughs> says different. Um, the other is, um, you know, many countries have taken this back um, and other countries are, are trying to figure things out. So France, for example, has banned phones in, the, in, in certain grades in school. OK, some of the Nordic countries have done exactly the opposite. They say to the kids, bring your phones to school. They've integrated them into the classroom and they teach the children how to use them responsibly. North America hasn't figured out anything and the teachers are kind of fighting. uh, Do we take the phones away or or not? And the kids are looking at the phones under uh, the table and in university lectures, the, 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 the professors, they see all the the light switches on the faces and they know that the students aren't following. We haven't figured anything out. We need rules. Uh, we need to get rules. We need to instill them. We need to teach the youth how to use this responsibly. And like anything else, we need to reevaluate our rules all the time to ensure the rules themselves aren't outdated. Um, but, you know, we, we, it's the blind leading uh, the, the blind or the, the blind leading the, uh, the, the sighted. 
And I have, again, I, I don't mind sending this out when I put this up. It's, uh, it's fairly conservative, but I talk about if you don't want to affect attachment, have no screens whatsoever until age three. There are a couple of exceptions like Skyping with grandparents, but apart from that, okay. If you don't want to affect, um, um, you know, the uh, 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 temperament, um, you know, tantruming, et cetera, um, or what I should say, emotional development, um, and to a certain extent, attention, and also, I should say, not to a certain extent, also um, attention abilities um, and emotional regulation. Don't introduce it until, you know, uh, seven, perhaps even nine. If you don't want to affect communication abilities, don't introduce it until 12. If you don't want to affect psychosocial sexual development, do not introduce it until 14. You see where I'm going? Mm -hmm. So we need eyes on all of the things we know about how it affects uh, children's development. And if a parent um, or an educational system chooses to to have these uh, technologies used with or for their children, be cognizant of what exactly what they're doing and be present. Don't say, oh yes, you are now X years old, you can have a phone. No, you say, darling dear child, you are now mature enough to learn how to use a phone. We are going to get you a phone for this lovely occasion. And each week we're gonna sit down and learn how to use it. After X amount of time, we will feel comfortable with you using the phone, not in our presence anymore. But, dear child, we are going to install, I hate the word spyware, but supervision aware. And every once in a while, we're going to be checking in just to ensure everything's okay. Never, 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 never spy on your children. Let them know you're watching. At the same time, I think when you're suggesting these things, you're also presuming that the parent knows the right way to use that device, which I don't think is as common as we would like it to be. Yeah, bingo, bingo. You're, 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 you're right on cue. That's why I said the blind are leaving the sighted or they're following your little sister. That Sorry, I, I needed to emphasize more. We need to learn so that we can also teach. Right. And I like the example you gave of Nordic countries who are teaching this during school, because I think one of the things, and I've been preaching this for a long time, not as a psychologist, but as someone who deals with the media, but media literacy is something I think we need at a very young age, which I imagine goes hand in hand with device literacy, screen literacy, and so on. And then when we used to teach HOMAC, uh, and, and, and shop, I mean, it was very generous, but we were teaching life skills. <laughs> I, you're right on. This is a life skill now. We need to teach it. That's why this book is this thick. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very thick book. And I do think we're going to leave it there. But for everyone who wants to learn about uh, hangovers and insomnia and all the other things that come along with screen time and yeah. social media, tell us what the name of the book is and where we can get it. Okay. So it's called iMinds. Uh, you can get it from your local bookstore and, of course, online. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, and also your, your, uh, your, your local bookstore can bring it in for you if you want to support a, a local business, which in times where small businesses are having trouble, that might be something to think of. <laughs> there you go. The Merrickville Book Emporium is my go-to uh, here in this area. So I, I, will, I will see if Mike can order it in. I'm going to give him a challenge. <laughs> 
Great. And it is also um, an audiobook, so that yes. you can go from Audible. So if you want to hear uh, the intro narrated by Dr. Swingle and listen to the audiobook, you can do so. Uh, it's probably a little longer than this podcast. The book is a lot longer than this podcast, and if you're interested, the link to it is in the show notes. Thank you, Dr. Mari Swingle, for being my guest today. Mindful is written, recorded, edited, produced, and hosted by me, Eric Bullman. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.